if you want to grab a seat, or if you don't, still do. If you have a Bible, uh, a hard copy or a, a digital copy on your phone, go ahead and open that up. We're going to be in Haggai, the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. If you're uncertain where Haggai is, uh, go to Matthew, the very start of your New Testament, and just flip back maybe seven, eight, ten pages, something like that, and Haggai is there. It's one of the last books in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to jump right in. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to be together and to worship with one another, God. Lord, I pray that this morning would be a time of uh, refreshment for your people. God, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come together to celebrate the cross, Lord, I pray that this morning, particularly over our time in Scripture, God, that this would be more than just acquiring some information, Lord, but that you would really stir up and set ablaze our affections for you. God, that as we see the truth of your word and the truth of who you are and who Jesus is, God, that it would renew and deepen our love for you. God, that we would be captivated afresh by the reality and the power of your presence with us in our lives. God, I pray that um, you would draw people to yourself this morning. Lord, that the truth of your word would convict God, that that conviction would lead to repentance and a receiving of grace for the very first time. God, I pray that you would do that work in people's hearts here this morning. But I also pray for those who are walking with you, Lord, that your word would bring conviction and stir a spirit of repentance, Lord, and that empowered by your spirit, God, we would be um, committed to walking in obedience to your word and the truth of what it is that you have to say. Lord, would you be glorified in all that we do here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we transitioned ourselves from the book of Zephaniah into the book of Haggai, and we're still approaching this the exact same way. We're asking ourselves three questions every time we uh, work through one of these passages in the Minor Prophets, and those questions are, what does this tell us about who God is? How does it remind us or what does it teach us about the gospel? And then third, what should we do with this today? So we're going to answer those same questions. But if you weren't here with us last week, when we began the book of Haggai, um, I pointed out that what Haggai is doing is that he's a prophet from the Lord sent to the people of Israel living in Jerusalem in order to shake them out of their indifference and their apathy toward the Lord. They returned from exile back into the city of Jerusalem. They immediately began work on the temple of the Lord. And then once they got the foundation laid, they just kind of stopped. And for 16 years, the temple sat there unattended to and unfinished. And then Haggai was sent to try to shake them out of their apathy and their indifference toward the things of the Lord. So that is where we are. Haggai uh, 1 verses 1 through 11 is the first of Haggai's speaking to the people in that manner. And then in verses 12 through 15, we're going to see their response. What we saw last week is that the Lord is worthy. That was the big takeaway from last week, that he's worthy um, of our passionate devotion and our highest priority, that he's uninterested in our passive sort of indifference or apathy. This week, we're going to build on that because we're going to see the people's response to Haggai's message. 
We're going to see how it is that the people respond to the Lord speaking to them, and we're going to see the, Lord, the way that the Lord responds to their response. And so the big takeaway this morning, what we learn about God in this passage is that the Lord is present. And my prayer this morning is that we will see and appreciate uh, the nature of the Lord's presence maybe in a new light. And so let me just read Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, and we'll start working our way through it. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest uh, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. The Lord is present. Here's what we're going to do over kind of the first maybe half of this message. We're going to build a little diagram here. Because I want you to see, I want us to see the way it is that the Lord's presence functions in the midst of our repentance and returning to him. That's what we see in Zephaniah 1, 12 to 15. The people repent. The Lord speaks through Haggai and the people respond to that and they obey. And yet there's a picture of the Lord's presence here that I want us to see. So we're going to deal with this kind of holistically rather than going in a linear fashion, but... I want us to see that before the people repent, the Lord's presence is with them. He is present, drawing his people toward repentance. Look at verse 14. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of all the remnant of the people. That word roused just agitated. It awakened. Um, Think You know, you're at the pool or something and you're sitting on a chair just in the nice warm sun and you kind of start to doze off and dad has been over with uh, your four-year-old and they cook up this funny idea that they're going to take a bucket of water and dump it on mommy, all right? That cold feeling where you would like sit up in the chair real fast, like you're agitated awake, you're, you you know, you want to know who did it and you're definitely not going to blame your four-year-old, you're going to blame dad right? Another way to think about this would be, this happens to me sometimes. I have a specific volume setting that I put my alarm on for in the morning. It's like four little dots on the volume thing. But sometimes something happens during the day and that volume gets adjusted. And the next morning when my alarm goes off on like level nine, um, I I like shoot up in the bed and I like grab the phone and half the time I end up kind of like half throwing it across the room or something but you've been roused awake. That's what happens here. The Lord is present with his people and he agitates or he awakens them toward repentance. That's his work. Look at the way it's said in verse 12. We're told that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai. Why? Because the Lord their God had sent him. The Lord's presence here is shown or displayed in the very fact that he sent the messenger to the people that would draw them to repentance. 
he does that first. He's present there among them before they have their moment of response, before they have their moment of repentance. And the text in verse 13 then shows us two ways that I think are important for us to think about how it is that the Lord is present with us, calling us and convicting us and moving us to repentance. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. There's a message and there's a messenger. More often than anything else in my life, the way that repentance is brought forth by the Lord in my heart is that I'm sitting at uh, our dining room table um, or I'm in my office and I'm, I'm looking into the pages of Scripture and I read something, um, I, I come across one of the commands of the Lord, and it's like cold water has been dumped into my heart. I've been agitated awake by the word of the Lord. There's something on those pages that does not align with something that I know is happening or is true in my life, and it is like the alarm volume is four times louder than I expected it to be that morning. And I have been roused awake by the message of the Lord. If you're walking with Jesus, you've received God's grace by faith in Him. I cannot encourage you enough as you pursue sanctification and you pursue holiness. You can't do it without the Word of God. You cannot do it without opening up the Bible, and reading the message of God from the pages of Scripture. More often than not, that is where conviction arises in my own life and in my own heart. He agitates us through his message, but sometimes he does that through a messenger. In this particular book of the Bible, the messenger is Haggai. All throughout the Old Testament, there are other prophets or messengers who are sent to deliver God's message to his people. In the life of David, that man was a man named Nathan. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul and Peter particularly, we see, are sent to groups of people in cities and they preach the message of God and people repent. They're agitated or aroused. They're awakened into repentance. This can happen today in your life in a number of different ways. It could be through the words of a pastor or a small group leader, a friend, an accountability partner, your spouse, parents. Sometimes you know that the messenger to highlight the reality of sin in your life is your child. And you're looking at this, you know, toddler, and you're thinking, how can this toddler be the means by which I'm convicted of my sin right now? It could be someone that is discipling you that is that messenger. It could be the person that you're discipling that is that messenger that the God uses to awaken or to agitate you toward repentance. Somebody says something and it's like cold water dumped on you and now you're awake. There's a story of uh, John Wesley and he would get together with a group of pastors in London and they would talk about ministry and the things that were going on in the city and the work that the Lord was doing in their congregations. And it was uh, pastors of all different ages. And at one of these meetings, the youngest pastor there present uh, challenged or called out the oldest member of the group about something that was going on in that man's life. And one of the other folks present there kind of jumped in and said, whoa, 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 young buck. You don't do that to this particular person. 
He's the oldest, the wisest. He's been walking with the Lord the longest. And John Wesley interjected. And he said, I will thank any person among us to tell me of any sin they see in me. Doing so, I shall consider them as my truest of friends. It's the Lord's presence through his message, through his word, or through a messenger that agitates or awakens, that compels us or moves us or rouses us to repentance. Here in the book of Haggai, the people of Jerusalem are roused to repentance thanks to the message of the Lord through the messenger, Haggai. The Lord's present before our repentance. It's his work to draw us to that. But repentance is what happens. Look in verse 12. Uh, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai. If you jump down in verse 14, it says that the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people and they began work on the house of the Lord of armies. All the people there in Jerusalem had a moment of repentance. The actual word order of the text in Hebrew on uh, verse 12 is then heeded Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the entire remnant of the people. They obeyed. The Lord's present with them. He worked to convict the people and they responded to their conviction with repentance. I want to pause here for just a moment and talk about the difference between conviction and repentance because they are two different things. You can feel convicted and never move to a place of repentance. If you've been going to church long, uh, you've been walking in kind of Christian circles long, you've felt this before. You've been in a service on a Sunday morning and the pastor said something and you felt convicted. It was like cold water got dumped on you or the alarm sounded and you felt like your spirit had been shaken awake and then you left and there was no actual repentance. There was conviction but it never moved to a place of repentance. So what is conviction versus what is repentance? Well, conviction uh, can get stopped. And this is is what I want to highlight. What's conviction feel like? Well, oftentimes our initial emotional response to conviction is one of defensiveness. That Something is said, whether it be in a sermon or something is said by someone in your small group or your accountability partner or your spouse or whoever it might be, and the immediate response to that, even though you know there might be a kernel of truth in it, is that you get defensive. You get defensive because your flesh is coming under attack. That's what's happening. If you've been here very long, my hatred for spiders is well documented. And so I'm about to use an illustration that might sound inhumane. I don't feel like it's inhumane. So whenever I see a spider, uh, like let's just say I'm in my kitchen and uh, one of those things scurries across the floor and I lock my eyes on it and it locks its million little eyes on me and I make a decision that I'm going to put an end to that thing. And so I walk over and I go to step on it, but spiders are shifty and they can move in all directions at equal speed at any moment. And so that thing just starts like juking and spin moving and like doing whatever it does. And I'm, I'm just like frantically stomping all over the ground trying to kill that spider because it is in survival mode. When we get convicted, 
and those feelings of defensiveness rise up in us. That is your flesh in survival mode. I do not want to be crucified right now. I, I will get defensive in order to survive. That's what's happening when defensiveness wells up inside of us and that will completely stop conviction from moving to repentance. We get defensive and if the defensiveness just lasts long enough, suddenly the conviction that we felt moves toward indifference and then we just go on with life in the same state. We can also move the other direction though, that there's an initial moment of conviction within us and then rather than becoming defensive, we move to this place of like self-loathing or self-hatred or something that uh, instead of being really defensive about the sin that's been called out in our lives, instead we kind of start to, to hate ourselves and we don't want to stay in that place either. So the sooner we could get back toward being indifferent, the sooner the self-hatred will go away. Neither one of those are healthy responses. Self-loathing in the face of our sin is not healthy. A defensiveness in the face of our sin is not healthy. Real conviction feels like a holy sort of discontent. Psalm chapter 6 describes it as a shaking in your bones. That's what conviction is. We get beyond our defensiveness, we get beyond our self-loathing, and we realize that this feeling of conviction is something that is stirring inside of us and saying, you cannot remain in this place. You've seen the truth of the Lord's message. You've heard that. It's not lining up in your life. And something inside of you says, I cannot remain this way. That feeling is like this loving pinprick from the Lord that creates within us an understanding that something has got to change. Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And that kindness is why we can let down the guard of defensiveness when conviction arises. It's kind of the Lord to do that for us, to illuminate this for us. That feeling becomes unavoidable. It lingers with you day after day until you finally address that. And the way we address our conviction is by moving in repentance. We come before the Lord we confess our sin. We pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us to walk in obedience in a different direction. That's what it is to repent. But sometimes conviction doesn't make it to the realm of repentance because we stop it before we get a chance to actually repent. Whereas in this case, verse 14, the people began work on the house of the Lord of armies. Repentance is evidenced by a change in action. That change begins in the heart, but it works itself out in a change of behavior. And it's the Lord's presence that draws to there. But there's something else that happens in this process. The end of verse 12, the people feared the Lord. Repentance has a close ally, and that ally is reverence. Repentance and reverence move together. Without reverence, there will be no repentance. Without repentance... It's hard to think that there's any evidence of reverence in your life. If you're convicted, but you're not in a place of reverence, you will feel uncomfortable until you're able to return to your indifference. The fear of the Lord is something that I think is confusing for us this side of the cross, because why would I need to be, like, why would I fear God? He sent his son on my behalf, and he absolutely did do that. But the Bible is filled with this command to fear the Lord. So what does that mean? The actual 
in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, is where this phrase is used the most. The actual word that gets translated in English in fear is actually a string of Hebrew words that don't have a great equivalent. So we compress that in to fear. The straight translation most literally would be to say that the Israelite people had reverence before the face of the Lord. We're commanded to be reverent before the face of the Lord. But that reverence is a trembling kind of reverence, an awareness of the truly awesome nature and power of the Lord. And without that kind of trembling reverence, we'll never move to a place of repentance. Let me illustrate. I was trying to come up with a good illustration for what it is to fear the Lord, especially to fear the Lord as a Christian, someone who knows Jesus. Uh, And I happened upon this John Piper story. And so uh, this is his illustration. I'm just going to borrow it in full. He tells a story about going uh, to visit a man who was a part of his congregation of his church in Minnesota. And he took his six-year-old son, Karsten, with him. When they got to the house, uh, knocked on the door, the owner opened up the door, and there standing next to the owner was a bull mastiff that could literally look his son dead in the eye. The bull mastiff is standing inside the house, their screen door, the son is standing outside, and they're looking directly at each other. That's how large this dog was. They go into the house and everything is fine, but Piper realizes that he left something out in the car. So he asks his six-year-old son, Karsten, will you run out to the car and grab that? So his son turns and uh, runs out the front door, and while the screen door is still open and yet to close, the bull mastiff runs out behind him. And there's like this low sort of growl coming from the dog, and the owner realizes what's happening immediately, jumps up and runs to the door behind the dog and Karsten and yells out the door, if you will stop running, he won't chase you. He doesn't like it when people run from him. If you'll just stop and walk, he'll walk next to you. Karsten hit the brakes real quick. And the dog walked up next to him. And they walked to and from the car, John Piper said, with Karsten's arms slung around the dog's neck. Now the power of the dog did not change. The power of that bull mastiff running after Carson was the exact same power of that bull mastiff standing next to Carson. The the fear there would be the same, but its nature has changed. No longer would Carson need to be afraid that all that power was going to be leveraged against him. Instead, that power has become protective. Now you've got all the weight and the power of that dog on your side, next to you, rather than chasing you. Piper ends that illustration by saying when we run from God, there's absolutely something to be afraid of. When we walk with him, our reverence and fear of him is not a trembling fear. It's an awareness of his power. That power is now one of protection. The sheer awesome force of the presence of God in our lives working for us, not against us, should produce trembling. That's what it means to fear the Lord. There's no repentance without that sort of reverence. What comes first? Do I repent and then I'm reverent or am I reverent and then I repent? What I want you to see this morning and what I've been thinking a lot about over the course of this week is that you can't pin that down, the order. The two are friends. They work together and we shouldn't try to separate them. I had a teacher in 10th grade who um, got the unfortunate privilege of being the only teacher from like middle school all the way through high school who got me and my best friend in the same classroom. 
Her name was Miss McGee. Bless her heart. Uh, we got to pick our own seats, and so, of course, Ryan and I chose to sit next to each other, and it took Miss McGee all of about three days to realize that that situation was not going to work, and she needed to probably separate us. Um, and so she splits us out. He's, like, up in one corner, and I'm back in the other corner, but now no one in the entire class can focus because we have not stopped our antics. They're just louder and more spread out now. And no one has the ability to focus now. And so what did Miss McGee do? Well, I'll just put you back next to each other and shove you in the corner, and we'll just contain it over there. You know, don't separate friends, I think is what she learned. I didn't check with her, but that's what I took away. (laughs) Don't separate friends here. The Lord is present and moves us toward repentance by convicting us, and then reverence and repentance work together. They feared the Lord, therefore they obeyed the Lord. They obeyed the Lord, and that was evidence that they feared the Lord. That's how conviction and repentance operates. And then we get one last assurance in verse seven, or verse 13 of the Lord's presence. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Repentance and reverence are met with God's presence. It's a declaration, an assurance, a promise. The Lord is present, drawing them to repentance and then sustaining them as they walk in obedience. He's present to rouse us with conviction. In His presence, we have reverence and we're moved to repentance. And in that reverence and repentance, we're met with an assurance of God's presence. Look at the safety of that. As followers of Jesus, I think we find confession and repentance to be an intimidating or like a frightening thing, but the reality is it happens bracketed by the gracious presence of the Lord, drawing you toward it and sustaining you out of repentance, rousing your spirit with conviction and then walking with you to sustain obedience. There shouldn't be anything to fear in that. Because the presence of the Lord surrounds the entire process. His gracious presence is there with you. How does this remind us of Jesus? What does this teach us about the gospel? Or what does it show us about the gospel? Well, it should remind us that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. When I read that verse 13, I am with you. I can't help but think of Matthew chapter 1. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Imagine the force of those words about a baby in a manger to a Jewish reader. I am with you. That is littered throughout the Old Testament. And then here's the birth of this baby, and we're told that that is God with us. There he is, in the flesh, in person. While in our sin, Jesus came and walked among us. While we were yet sinning, Christ died. His presence is with us. If we had to get ourselves right before Jesus was to come, we'd still be waiting for him to be here. And yet, he is there among us in the person of Jesus, and he calls us to repentance. Jesus' first message is to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He calls Pharisees to repent. He calls his followers to repent. He calls a woman at a well to go and to sin no more, to repent. 
And yet the beauty of the gospel is that he's also the one we call on in repentance. It's not just that he gave some sort of command for us to go and to do something. He actually paved the way for that repentance to be possible. He is the means by which we repent. And it's at the cross where we're inspired to reverence. It lovingly draws us to repentance. It is the physical manifestation of the kindness of God drawing us to repentance. There is Jesus, God with us, present in the flesh, hanging on the cross, calling us not only to repent, but to call on Him in our repentance. And that should create within us a humble fear of the Lord, to borrow from the imagery from Piper's illustration. There on the cross is all of the power of the Lord that should inspire a certain kind of fear within all of humanity. And yet for those who have received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, you can literally fling your arm around him and know that Yahweh Saba, the God of the universe, the Lord of the hosts, is on your side. And he's promised to be present with us going forward. Jesus says in John 16, verses 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I do go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world about sin. We're to be reminded that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, sent by Jesus, partially to do the work of convicting us of our sin, drawing us to repentance, and to do the work of reminding us of the beauty of the gospel and moving our often indifferent hearts back into a place of reverence and obedience to Him. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us, present with us. And so what do we do with this today? Well, if you're a note taker, jot down Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul works out this same sort of image of the Lord's presence and our repentance and reverence and obedience and His presence with us when He commands the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Why? That's the next verse, 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. He works in us, and we need to let him do that. We must do our part to put to death the feelings of defensiveness that might stop conviction from moving toward repentance. We must allow ourselves to come humbly before his word and hear his loving message so that we might feel convicted. We, might, or we must humble ourselves enough to hear from those around us who might be the messengers through which God is calling us to repentance. We need to let him work. It requires humility and a willingness and a submissiveness to the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But then we also need to work in response. We need to devote ourselves to obedience. We repent and we devote ourselves to walking in obedience. We pray for the Holy Spirit to help walk in a different direction than we were walking in. We pray that the Holy Spirit would shake us out of our apathy and out of our indifference. And then, to borrow from Haggai 1, verses 7 and 8, we go up into the hills, bring down the lumber, and build the house of the Lord, knowing that He will be pleased and He will be glorified. When the presence of the Lord convicts and then draws us to repentance, we stop doing the sinful thing and we start doing the obedient thing. And we do so knowing that that work is ultimately His and so we give Him glory. He is the one doing the work. The only reason 
you're drawn to repentance is because He fuels it. The only reason you walk in obedience is because He helps you to do so. The only reason that a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting thing is now happening in your life is because He is sustaining it. His presence brackets the entire process. We don't allow obedience to inflame our pride. Instead, we allow it to grow our humility because were it not for the presence of the Lord drawing us to repentance and walking with us in response, there would be no God-glorifying action in our lives. Let the Lord work. Be devoted in your responses and give Him the glory for the work that He's doing in you and through you. What we have here in Haggai are a group of people who are content to go about their own business, making their own houses look really nice while the temple of the Lord sits in disrepair. And then Haggai shows up and he delivers the message of the Lord and the people are moved by the presence of the Lord to repent and then they're sustained by the presence of the Lord to work in obedience to Him. There's no temple in our day. We don't have you know, a a physical building in one location somewhere where the presence of the Lord is said to dwell. Instead, 1 Peter chapter 2 says that the people of God are now the house of the Lord, and the Lord is present with them. He's present with us here collectively as a group of believers, but he's also present in each individual believer. And so here's how I want us to close this morning. We're going to take communion. Uh, If you're someone who's going to pass these out, if you would come and grab these trays and and start to distribute those. There are two cups uh, stacked up there. The bottom has a little wafer in it. The top is the juice. If you need a gluten-free wafer, those are in the center. Um, If you're someone who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you've received his grace, we invite you to take communion alongside us. And as this is getting passed out, uh, I want to just kind of direct our attention. So kind of remain focused here for just a moment. One of the the beauties of the gospel in this book of Haggai is that there is that line in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1 where the Lord commands the people of Jerusalem to go up into the hills and to get the wood and to build the house of the Lord. This command to go and to do something. And as here, the house of the Lord, we don't have a temple to build. In fact, we've got a church to build. But Jesus has actually laid the foundation of that by giving of himself. And so as we read, uh, go up into the hills and gather the lumber, I can't help but picture the fact that Jesus, it's, it's as though he literally said, why don't you go grab the wood, fashion it into a cross, and I will go up on that hill and I will build the house of the Lord. I will give of myself because there's no amount of good behavior. There's no amount of obedient action that could possibly save any individual. So I will go up onto that hill and I will lay myself down as the cornerstone to that temple so that all who place their faith in me will be built into the house of the Lord and surrounded by my presence at all times. That is the beauty of the gospel. Go get the wood, Jesus said. Get the lumber, fashion it into a cross, and rather than gather it and build a temple, why don't you nail me against it and I will build it for you. And so we come together and we take communion. And what we have is Jesus' body doing that act on our behalf. We get the reminder of the presence of the Lord that surrounds us in our repentance, draws us in reverent awe to His work on the cross, and then sustains us in obedience on the backside. 
Communion should be a reminder for us that Jesus was not indifferent about glorifying the Lord. And that His passion and His devotion led Him all the way to a sacrifice of Himself on our behalf. And so in response, we come before Him and allow our indifference to be crucified. We come before Him and allow the presence and the safety of Him and His sacrifice on our behalf to be that which allows us to move into places of repentance, to trust His goodness and His kindness in its conviction and in drawing us to repentance and then to rely upon Him to walk in obedience. And so as we do this today, what I want us to think about, what I challenge you to consider are all the times that you've allowed conviction to grow cold. The times where you've allowed maybe a lack of reverence to stifle repentance in your life. And then to take a fresh look at the cross because there's God with us. Paving the way for our forgiveness and also paving the way for our ongoing repentance and obedience to Him. In a body broken and a blood poured out on our behalf. Let's take this together. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. We take communion in remembrance of Him, but I also pray this morning that it would move us to a reverence of Him. Let's stand up and sing together.